If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 19 to 25. And then we'll jump in. Oh, I didn't say there is a cover letter with the packet that you can get um, that's specifically to explain why we wrote the devotional and what it's meant to do. So if there's somebody you might want to do it with, you can give them the cover letter with the devotional and say, hey, would you read this? Maybe you consider doing this with me. Um, this is mostly from, from Jill. I said some stuff, but she did all the work as per usual. Okay. Romans 8, 19 and 25. For creation waits in eager expectation for the son of, sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it eagerly. Your translation probably says patiently. That's a bad translation. I'll get to that later in the sermon. That phrase, um, we, ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. The wait and the hope, right? That's what this series is going to be about that we're going to do. Um, I think it's important to recognize that um, waiting on God, see if I can get this word. Um, the idea of waiting on God is a thing that Christians say. We're gonna have to wait on the Lord. We need to wait on God for that. I'm gonna wait. I'm waiting on God, brother. Um, did she go out with you yet? We're waiting on the Lord. You know, that kind of thing. And um, Christians say it all the time. And people have very different reactions to it. Um, in a lot of ways, um, people think of it as an aphorism that's really just a cliche, you know. Um, because we understand it really shallowly. It's important to recognize that the whole idea of Advent, right? Advent is, comes from the Latin for an event, something that happens, a happening, right? But the concept of Advent is for 40 days, you wait for it to happen until Christmas Eve night, right? It's a time of waiting, both in the darkness and the time of silence, right? Without God's apparent help and in anticipation for his arrival, right? The word passion in English came from Latin um, f actually through specific reference to the sufferings of Jesus. In the 1200s, passion just meant the suffering of Jesus. It wasn't until the 1500s that it actually meant um, our passions, like our feelings inside. Because what it, it came from patri, which means um, what the heart must endure. It's about a functional definition of patri, from where we get passion. What the heart must endure, right? That's, I think that's helpful for the concept of waiting. Um, the concept of waiting relative to suffering is that there is something under the weight of the curse that the heart must endure. That's what we all, we all bear that. There's a weight to all of that for all of us, right? And yet, there is a lightness or a counterweight that comes from anticipation. Whether it's going to Disneyland in four months, which isn't going to happen, okay? Um, but there are things that we look forward to, and that by anticipating them, it actually lightens the load of whatever we have cares about, right? And 
Um, I know people who deliberately plan their vacations a year in advance. Not because it requires that, but because they want to look forward to it for 12 months before they go on it, because they get like six times the value out of it. Does that make sense? Because they're the kind of person that really anticipates things, right? Um, what, I, what I want us to see is that the reason why people often think waiting on God or waiting for the Lord is kind of a— you can get it, sweetie, don't worry— uh, is like a cliché, right? It's because people don't want to—they don't want to dig deep enough to get the wisdom out of it, right? There's a lot of aphorisms that are like that. They seem really simple, and they seem too simple to be true, and so we go, oh, that's stupid. Um, I've seen this with um, Christians, right? I've seen Christians say, well, I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord, and I can tell when they say it, they have no idea what that means, right? Um, I've seen— um, non-Christians really despise Christians for talking like that because they're like, yeah, that's what weak people do when they don't want to take responsibility for their lives. They say stuff like, I want to wait on the Lord, right? And I've, I've gotten frustrated at my charismatic friends in the Christian church who they say, they'll say, we need to wait on the Lord, like in a worship service when we were doing something. And you're like, what are we, what are we waiting for? What's happening? And yet, in a deeper sense, that is actually what that phrase does mean. And I'm actually jealous for us to understand what this phrase means so that we don't divide the body of Christ too. And so um, we're going we're gonna to focus on this for the next five sermons, the next four weeks, on what, is it, what does it really mean to wait on the Lord? Why is waiting, saying that we're, we're people that wait on the Lord or wait for the Lord, why is that not a cop-out or a cliche? Why is that a deep aphorism that's full of wisdom that can guide a life? Why is it something that David, one of the most, one of the greatest warriors, a man of action, always a man of action, did constantly? How is it not a, not a thing of passivity at all, but, but actually the activity of faithfulness is to wait on the Lord? And in what sense can we as Christians understand its profound importance, right? So let me move a little forward here. So what I want to demonstrate that it's, it's not a cliche, but it's a really deep area of meaning, and it's a necessary and integral spiritual principle for Christian faith. Secondly, I want to make sure we understand what it means and how, how to do it. <laughs> how it operates. And third, I want you to see its importance and its benefits. Um, you cannot grow in Christ and be formed in Him by the work of the Spirit without the discipline of learning what it means and operating as somebody who waits on the Lord or waits for the Lord in the right kind of way. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, um, this morning, what I would normally do in this kind of series, because I am who I am, is I would start with a really technical, philosophical understanding of why we don't understand waiting on the Lord, and how we can if we think about it with these eight caveats, with these 19 verses. And I, I feel like that might not be helpful if I, tell, if I do that and I tell you to come back for week five. Like, the, like come back on Christmas Eve for, for some hope, okay? So what I want to do this morning is I want to just use a fairly simple metaphor that I think everybody can understand, and that I think um, operates pretty well as a general understanding of how this works. And then I'm going to try to deepen it over the next four sermons right? Rather than get really complicated right now, okay? Don't worry, it'll get complicated, but. Um, there is a natural human principle where anticipation is the counterweight to desperation, okay? Anticipation can function as a counterweight to desperation, okay? Desperation is like you can't wait for something to end. <laughs> you know, like it, it just has to end. You can't wait for it to end. You're impatient for it to end, and anticipation is you can't wait for something to start, you can't wait for something to happen. You can't wait for it to begin. Does that make sense? And so, one of the things that helps desperation is a counterweighting anticipation, right? 
And, and sometimes it's really unhealthy. For example, you can have a, like a teenager that hates their parents, right? And they're like, I can't wait to like get out of here and go to college. It's going to be awesome, right? So they're like, they're comforting themselves that their time at home is going to end because they don't value it, right? Because they're being pissy and immature. And they think college is going to be better than it is, you know, and different than it is. So they're like, oh my. So sometimes your anticipation can be overblown and false. And sometimes your negativity and your desperation can be overblown and dumb, right? And it may be based on your maturity or all kinds of things, right? But sometimes it's really helpful, right? Sometimes you're like getting through COVID thinking like someday— like, we're all going to come to church and be together. It's going to be great. We're going to have, like, this thing called a potluck, and we're going to actually like it because it's been so long. You know, that kind of thing, right? Sometimes it's just simple like that. Now, the supernatural truth is that whether or not you want to believe it, the weight of the curse, that is the condition of not just the human heart, but of all creation that is subjected to the, what Romans 8 calls the futility of the curse, right? It's under this—, this futility, right? There's a weight to it. And th that weight crushes the human spirit. It crushes the heart. And so um, there's a weight on the heart that crushes the spirit that leads to human desperation, right? You, and usually what that means is, you're, is that when you have that feeling of desperation that builds, either you get more and more angry, you start believing more and more in the, of, in the futility of everything, and you, or you get more and more escapist in your behavior. Because you have to deal with it somehow. But one of the things that the curse does is that if you recognize what it is and how it's destroying you and what it's, how it's affecting your heart and how it's closing down your capacity to feel and be who you're meant to be, is you, re you realize that you need a remedy that's as big as the curse. As sufficient, as important. And the supernatural truth is, is that the counterweight to the weight of the curse on your heart is actually the hope and the anticipation of glory. That's what Scripture teaches everywhere. And, and because of that, it's important to recognize that you can't actually live operatively as a Christian. You can be a Christian. You can believe in Jesus. You can be saved. You can read your Bible. You can be a good person. You can—like, there's all kinds of functional things you can do. But you cannot experience the freedom, the glorious freedom of the sons of God now, operatively by the Spirit, unless there is an operative hope of glory— that is working through an active, eager expectation. That is, there isn't just the hope of Jesus out there. There is hope operating in here toward that hope. Do you understand? You only, you only access resource-wise the hope that is operative. And to the extent to which we take the hope of glory for, for granted and, and hoping in it and longing for it isn't operative in our hearts, it doesn't do it. It doesn't lift the weight. Do you understand? Okay, so let's go through this three, those three parts quickly. The curse is like a weight crushing the heart. Second, the weight of glory is the counterweight to the curse. And three, hope becomes operative through anticipation. Okay, so first is the weight of the curse naturally crushes the heart. All through Scripture, from Genesis 3 onward, it says that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, that the human heart is twisted and broken and we hurt and break each other, right? Um, it says that creation itself, all of creation is subjected to futility, under the curse. We are living in a world that has a certain kind of weight to it that's, that, that crushes us. And, and the reason it crushes us, us is we are created for something else, and we know it's not supposed to be this way. Do you understand? We, for example, I gotta do this, I'll have to do this a bit quickly, but um, I'll probably say more about this in the, in the AMA, but um, imagine a clone of yourself that's exactly like you in every way, every single way, is exactly like you are, except it doesn't care about anything. 
It doesn't care about what happens to it. And it doesn't care about what happens to anything else. Okay? But other than that, it's exactly like you, right? Does that clone of yourself experience more or less internal turmoil and weight than you? And the answer is much less. Right? Because the, a huge portion of the weight, our turmoil, our hurt, our pain, our sufferings, our longings, are, are not objective things out in the world. They are how those things are internalized because we're creatures that know it's not supposed to be like this. Right? If you weren't like that, then this, these things wouldn't bother you even to the point of you being ground up in a meat grinder. You wouldn't care. It wouldn't bother you. It wouldn't frustrate you. You wouldn't feel like the great injustice of it. You wouldn't rage in anger or feel like the whole world is futile or, you, or rush off in like some kind of escapist behavior because you've got to get out of all this hurt and pain and pressure. You wouldn't care because you'd be the kind of creature that doesn't care. But the problem is you're not that kind of creature. You are the kind of creature that desperately and deeply and holistically and completely cares about, well, in some ways, your, yourself in kind of a twisted way, but even under the curse, you can't get rid of that. Right? And you even care about other things. And if you want to crush the human spirit, make it sensitive of all that everything means everywhere at all times. Right? Part of the reason some of us are like, well, I don't feel very crushed by the way. I must be a strong person. No, you've, you've created psychological walls so you don't feel that 40,000 children are going to starve today. Well, with coronavirus, it's probably more like 85,000 children in the world are going to starve to death today. And there's food like a mile that way that could feed them, and it just isn't going to get to them. They're going to die. That's going to happen today. Right now, while you're sitting here, I don't know, a couple thousand kids are going to die. Why doesn't that emotionally destroy you, right? And the answer is it's because we're these little people with these little experiences. We have little walls up, so we don't feel things, and so we don't have to. But if you felt, if you felt the way of the curse, like God feels the way of the curse, right, there would be nothing left of us emotionally. You'd be gone. It is our denial, it is our walls, and our separations, and our insensitivities, and our self-centeredness, and our closed-mindedness, and our self-involvement, and that keeps us going, that keeps us alive, that keeps us from breaking down, right? But even with all those defense mechanisms, you still feel the weight. It still crushes you, right? Now, um, I, okay, I, for the next part, I need a volunteer who is not whiny, and I happen to, like, moderately crush your head in this illustration, but it won't hurt you permanently. Um, can, I have a, can I have a volunteer? Preferably a guy, because I don't feel like I can do this to a girl. Can we? All right, yeah, great. Great, let's get a neurologist up here. This will be great. Okay. All right, if you could lay down here with your head there facing that way. It would be great. Okay. So, um, all right. Now— Sometimes we think about the curse as a mental problem, like a question, like a truth question. Like, is God being good if he lets things be bad? And, and listen, it is a philosophical question, okay? The question of suffering and why we suffer and how God's really that, you can analyze that. So let's try to stay awake. Um, you can analyze that philosophically, but it's also a psychological problem. It's a mental issue of our emotions and our heart because the curse is crushing our heart actively, all the time. Do you understand? And sometimes we don't even realize what it's doing to us, or how we're closing ourselves down, and creating new defense mechanisms, or becoming less human, less open-hearted, less loving, less ready to respond to others, less ourselves. Do you understand? Okay, so the way I'm going to illustrate this is I'm going to 
I'm gonna cr- crush, so move your head right, right, right there, there you go. Okay, so here's Andrew's head. And here is a little basket. I'm gonna put this here so you don't feel it too much. Okay, there we go. So, okay, now, here's, I got some different weights. I got like 200 pounds. I don't think he'll probably be able to do that. So this is three pounds. This is like, they don't have the right latte at your coffee shop, okay? So, so he's, so Andrew's going in and he's like, he feels the injustice. How does that feel? Is it okay? Here, you can, you know how to use a microphone. I'll just give you that. So how is that? Are you okay with it? You okay? It's okay. All right, so this is five pounds. This is your wife, like, yelling at you too much? Surely not, since you have a baby. She wouldn't feel short-tempered. Okay, so how, how are we doing? It hurts a little bit. It's okay. Okay, how, could you live like that forever? Mm, probably. With medication? Okay. Um, <laughs> so I've got, all right, I've got, I've got this 45-pound death of a child one. Um, yeah. Or we could do 25 pounds, which this is probably your name gets ruined at your career or something. Mm, yeah. And then 10, it would be like, do you like the Packers? <laughs> Just kidding. This would be something pretty bad. Okay, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to put this in, okay? Okay. All right. How's that? It's, it's a little worse. A little wor- okay. Could you like live for that, like that forever? Or after With a while, meditation. would you like kind of go crazy? <laughs> It's getting worse. I see, see the little, he's got the little things right there. Yep. Like he's, he's being nice. Okay, so you see how like, it's like, the, the curse is like that. Now listen, the good news is, are you ready for this to be over? Okay, the good news is, is that, listen, the, the gospel is like an operative counterweight. Here's the problem. There it is. There it is. You can help yourself a little if you need to, right? It only matters if it's operative. Do you understand? You have to take the hope and you have to hope in it. Do you understand? Oh. Does that feel a little better? That's, it is. It's a little better, but not, right? It's not now, totally listen. gone, but it's better. All right. So, you see, you, see, you, you gotta, and, and it's not all at once. Like, it's not like you're gonna be like, oh, I Ooh. like Jesus. I feel totally better forever. Like, it's not gonna all happen at once. But what has to happen is you gotta get more weight in here than is there. All right? Now, so listen, some people, honest to God, you're gonna have this one in your basket. In this, I'm not going to put it in there, but it, it, like, it's good. Like, this is going to happen to you. You're going to get, you're, you're going to be, something's going to happen to you that I, I'm not going to say with little girls in the room, right? Or, or like your spouse is going to walk out on you, or someone's going to abandon you, or you're going to get cancer at 26 or four years old, or like you're going to get cheated on, or you're going to get, you're not going to get into college. You're going to flunk out because you couldn't handle it. Like something that's going to feel devastating to you. And listen, Here's the, here's, the, here's the good news. There's like a thousand of these over here. Do you understand? There's like a thousand of them. And I can't... You could get to the point ah. where you could just put enough in here that it's gone. Do you understand? Thank you, Andrew. Just handsome and couple. You just put that on there. Just saying, now listen, here's, here's the thing you understand. Great job. Okay. Here, here's the thing you understand, is that um, under the weight of the curse, there's all kinds of ways we try to counterweight this. Right? We'll flare up in anger and say, I'm going to stop this injustice. I'm going to lift this myself. I'm going to get it off of me. I'm going to push back the world, right? And that works, except, except anger is not a very reliable emotion you're going to actually create as much suffering as you alleviate in most cases, and 
you oftentimes won't get justice. What's going to happen when you don't get justice, right? There's all kinds of issues with anger. Now, there's times where it's appropriate. There's times it should be used. But it's not your hope, right? It's, it's not the thing that you know can counterweight the whole weight of the curse. It can, it can counterweight somebody hurting your feelings. Some little weight like that. You can anger, you know, you can maybe get justice. But if you're talking about the weight of the curse, what's your goal? Like, what's your scheme? What's your plan for dealing with the fact that you are an image-bearing creator, cre- creator and creation who can't help but care that the world isn't the way it should be and the world is wildly not the way it should be? What's your plan for that? Because it is actively crushing your heart, which is ruining your spirit, which is leading you to desperation. Right? The anger that you're feeling you think is going to help you get justice is part of the weight of the curse that's crushing your heart and destroying you. Right? Same thing is true with resignation. You can just decide everything's futile and resign yourself to it. Um, But that's really just denying that your heart's getting crushed. It, It doesn't really help you. You can, Andrew could lay there and say, this isn't hurting my head. It doesn't really hurt. It doesn't hurt that much at all. But yet, right, remember he was like, you know, it's not that bad. Like you could see the blood vessels coming out of his forehead, right? It was, it's bad. Quit denying it. Quit pretending like you don't care. It's going to be fine. Or like, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. There, There are something you can do in your heart to face the pain and to deal with it and to turn to God and to allow hope of glory to overcome the way of the curse. There's a lot you can do. You might not be able to change the circumstance. You can't change the past. But there is something you can do. It's not futile. Right? Amen. And similarly, like, we get, you can be led to relativism, which in this context just means there's lots of good things in the world that we could try to grab hold of. Like, there's good hobbies and good stuff, and there's good TV shows, and there's all kinds of things we could just, like, just try to get enough good flowing in my life to overcome the bad. And that, that's not a bad way to work. That's how most humans function. But listen, that's fine if there's just a few bad things that happen and you just try to make the good more than the bad. But if you live under a curse, like if Scripture is correct that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and that that's a deep and meaningful thing, you need something bigger than that. Like, listen, I, I really I enjoy watching football. I particularly enjoy watching the Packers. I particularly enjoy watching the Packers when they win. But like, that is not my hope for dealing with the curse, okay? Like, if I get cancer and I'm dying, I'm not going to be like, well, let's put the Packers on. Like, that's not— going to be my thing. Right? I'm going to hope in Christ to deal with it, and then I'm going to watch the Packer game. Because it's fun. Right? Or relief. Like, like, if you have that weight on you, you might be like, there's got to be a way to feel good for a little while. I, maybe I can't get the weight off me entirely, but I can, I can do some drugs. I can throw myself in a relationship. I can watch Netflix until my eyes dry up and shrivel up like a little— piece of beef jerky. Like, I can—there are things I can do to feel fine now. And I can just seek relief. And, and none of those are what you're created for. None of those are the sufficient resources God has given you in His Christ. None of those will lead you to a glorious freedom that is the heritage of the sons and daughters of God. None of that will make you a powerfully loving person capable of walking out bravely and powerfully into a world that's full of malevolence and the curse and to bring good into it, the love of God into it, and wholesomeness and flourishing into it. Able to be a peacemaker when everybody else is angry. Able to keep your head when everybody's exercised and going crazy. Like, you, you, need, a, you need a bigger goal, a bigger thing happening. Does that make sense? So now, um, the second thing is, is that the weight of glory is the counterweight of the curse, right? If you're like, well, what's the counterweight? The counterweight is not just generally Jesus, 
but it is specifically the opposite of the curse. Do you understand? If, if, you, say the, if you say, well, the answer to the curse is Jesus, the answer is, well, in what way is Jesus the answer to the curse? Because the vaguer you are, the less helpful your belief is. Do you understand? If you think you can be like, well, I'm just going to trust Jesus, and that's going like, to answer every question your heart has the rest of your life, you're wrong. You have to have a specific answer relative to Jesus to the specific problem. And if the problem is that the weight of the curse hangs over your heart in weight, right, and it will ultimately crush your spirit, and that will leave you, lead you to all kinds of self-destruction rather than the glorious freedom of the children of God, what is the specific answer? And the answer is, is that that curse is going to be obliterated by the opposite reality that God will bring into being in his good time, which is glory. That's the opposite. Glory. You can see this as you go through a number of passages. There's this particular verb in, um, in the New Testament that I'm going to get to in the, in the next point in a minute. But if you, if you track that verb's usage and the content the apostle uses with it, it's always glory. So let's look at a couple of these. Romans 8, 18. I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. You see what he's saying? Our present sufferings are nothing. If you put the full weight—now listen, most people don't. We'll, we'll get that in a second. Most of us put almost no weight here. We believe in the weight. We don't put it in here, right? But he says, like, if you actually believe in the glory that will be revealed in us, it is not worth comparing to the weight of the curse. Does that make sense? Another ver- option, version of this is in—ooh, I almost did too. In 2 Corinthians 4, 15 to 18, it says this. This is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, meaning being imprisoned and shipwrecked and all these things that have been horrible, and they've come into their life not just because of the curse, but because they're Christians and they live lives combating the curse— they even get more weight of the curse because they're fighting the curse. So it singles them out and goes after them through the flesh of man and through the worldliness of the world, right? So he says, listen, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so in each case, you can see this, you'll see this in this point too, that the apostle connects the weight of the curse with the counterweight of glory, right? Now, I want to say this again. I want you to take this away. Hope is both a noun and a verb, okay? You can say, what's your hope? And you can say, well, my hope is Jesus Christ crucified and risen, has died for my sins, and has, been, has risen for my justification, and has made me his child, and I will be his own. Okay, great. That's the noun. That is your hope, the content of the message of the gospel that you've put your trust in. That is incredibly important, right? If you haven't done that, it is the truth. It is the true hope of all of humanity, and you should believe it. It's the gift of God to everyone, and it was accomplished through his advent, right? But here's the thing. If you believe that, the question is, to, do you anticipate that hope so much as you perseverate on the curse, okay? Do you anticipate mentally, into the hope, as much as you perseverate onto the curse, right? So things happen in your life that you don't want to happen. Somebody cuts you off, you get fired. I mean, like, all kinds of different variations. You know, somebody didn't get your little coffee right, or, you know, like, your, these pants used to fit, or like, I mean, something little, or just something really big, right? And it's easy to, like, spiral on that thing, just be like, oh my gosh, everything's so bad. Okay, but do you, 
do you spiral your mind around over and over again on the truths of the glory to come? To what you're an heir of, to what you're a child of, to what God has promised you, to what he's purchased through his Christ, to what he's explained in the gospel, to what he's promised to you, right? So there's this verb in the New Testament that goes along with the—it's it's cognitive to the word hope. It's a little different, and it's usually translated eagerly expecting. It's, it, it's not just the hope. It's hope operative, right? It's the idea that you're—you don't just believe it's going to happen, but you are in the state of expectation in such a way as that it affects you emotionally, psychologically, and it helps you, it lifts you, right? So, for example, in um, Romans 8, 19, 20, you can see this. Do I have a laser thing? Oh, there we go. So, right, creation waits, the how, in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, right? And then it says, but if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it. And see, the, the, the NIV translated that word patiently. It's not, that's not what that word means. It means eagerly. If we, it says, he's saying, listen, if we don't have, have it, but we hope in it, here's what happens. What hope means, if you have a hope, you hope in it, right? Or it's not a hope. But what that means is you should be doing the hoping, and the hoping is the eagerly expecting. And in the eagerly expecting, you can deal with the longing and the groanings, because the longing and the groanings are offset by the eagerly expectings. And it's very easy for us to just lose sight of that, to just not, like, don't you feel like culturally you're made to feel unsophisticated if you think about heaven? Like, that's stupid, right? Like, heaven's stupid. Like, and so you're not—see, even if you hold on to your Christian faith in the face of secularized pressure that makes you feel unsophisticated, you, even if you believe stuff, it's just—you're you're, you're just dumb, right? And then you just—you say, okay, well, if I don't want to feel unsophisticated, so I'll just—I won't, I won't fix my thinking on heaven, right, or glory. What happens is, is that you didn't lose your faith, but they just took away your faith. Like, you, you just lost the operative power of your faith to actually help you, transform you, lift you, empower you. You're still Christian, but you have allowed the intellectual bullying of others to cut you off from faith itself. And all of the resources that flow to you through believing God and hoping in Him, right? And it's, it's not just a question of, like, imagining yourself, because a lot of our secular friends would think what that means is we're imagining ourselves in, like, you know, little white togas with little harps. And they have some—they have an, a mental image of heaven that's as preposterous as their image of the devil, which is like a guy in, like, red tights with, with horns and a pitchfork, right? And the more preposterous both those views become, the more ludicrous they seem and the more we are led to not think about them because we think that they're ridiculous. But in fact, what we're taught about heaven is not— we're not even really taught about heaven. Like, can you think about any place in the Bible that teaches about heaven? Like, there's, there's some apocalyptic sections in Revelation that seem to point to something about the city of God and what it might look like, okay? That's basically it. Right? What we're taught is the meaning of heaven and that the great meaning of heaven is the reversal of the curse. Right? And so we're, we're, taught, about, we're taught more about the qualities of heaven than about the details of heaven. One of them being, for example— in Romans 5, it says—or in Galatians 5, it says this. Um, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You fall away from grace, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now, that's partially in reference to the work of the Spirit now in sanctification, and that we can grow in righteousness now and really be changed, right? But it also points forward that the Spirit is sustaining us in the groaning of this life until finally what will happen is we won't be like this anymore. 
Like, do you, like, is that one of your hopes? Like, honestly, one of my greatest hopes for heaven is that I'll be saved from myself, okay? That, that, that every fault that I have, all of, all of the righteousness that is not operative in me, all the ways in which I am self-important, or I get upset, or I, like, I get um, irritable, or I'm small-minded about something, or I think in a quick pattern rather than really considering what somebody's saying when I don't listen, when I talk, when I should shut up. All these defects that are constantly evident in my life, and and what they're doing to other people is increasingly evident in my life, and it just frustrates the heck out of me, and I, I, here's the thing. Even the weight of that that's crushing my head is a longing to be free of it. Like, the more the curse crushes me and says, you stink, the more there is a directly connected truth in the gospel related to glory where Jesus says, yeah, and that's going to end. It's going to end more throughout your life because of the work of the Spirit, and it's ultimately going to end altogether. Right? The, the curse itself, we'll talk about this the fifth sermon, that part of how God grows us is the very things that we're crushed under and that we long to end are also the very things glory reverses and are part of the promises of what God is going to give and what he's already accomplishing. Right? And you can walk through a number of these passages. In Philippians, it says um, that we eagerly await um, that just as Jesus rose from the dead and his body was transformed, so God will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious one. And in Hebrews, it says um, it's, it, is, it is destined for a man once to die and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time. Not, as, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who wait for him. But the word means to anticipate, to eagerly await him. That is, that it's true. Like, all of us on some level fear of judgment. Either secularly people attacking us or judging us in ways that we don't deserve, right? Or ultimately the one who has the right to really judge us, God, in a way we do deserve, and the more, the more that weighs down on us in the curse, that we deserve it. We deserve judgment. Again and again, our own malevolence will be shown to us in our own behavior, and people will confront us about it, and we'll be like, I'm, I'm not a very good person. I'm not looking forward to judgment. And that weight has the exact kind of weight that, where the apostle says, that's right. That's right. It is appointed for every man and woman to die and to face judgment. But Jesus the Christ, the great sacrifice and the great high priest— sacrificed himself once for all to take away sins, and he will come not to judge, but to save and deliver from their guilt everybody who eagerly awaits him. So, um, the curse is a weight on the heart that crushes the spirit, right? And it is crushing unless you have a counterweight. The counterweight that God offers is not anger or futility or relief or anything. It is the glory promised you in the gospel of Christ himself, the glory itself, in all of its facets. And third, it is only operative as a counterweight if you hope in it, if you actively anticipate what's coming, and you apply that active anticipation to the weight of the curse. And that, that is an active thing that you do emotionally and intellectually and in faith. It's one of the reasons we sing worship songs, because we try to bring poetry and emotion and thought and theology all together related to a particular theme, usually related to the curse and Christ's relief of it. Right? And so I, I want you to see that as we—I'll I'll preach a little bit more about the glories themselves as we move on in the series, but I, I want you to understand that when we say we're waiting on the Lord, we're not just laying around. 
Waiting on the, on the Lord is an intensely active process of emotional and intellectual exertion through the soul to eagerly anticipate the glories promised in the death and resurrection of Christ as applied to the crushing weight of the curse to free ourselves in Christ into the glorious freedom of the children of God so that we can live by the law of the Spirit, not under the law, and so we can walk in the courage and the faith and the hope and the life and that we can experience what Jesus called an abundant, filled life. It's like a flowing river. God, um, I wish I said all this better. I pray that as you, um, as you work in your people, as we sing now, as we think about this later, as we converse with our families, and hopefully as we work through the devotion this week, that you would work through our hearts that waiting on you, learning what it means to wait on the Lord, to wait on our God, is, is no cliche. It's a simple aphorism, but it means something deeper than we want to dig for and um, things that we actually are afraid for even to mean. But yet there's something there that will be relief to our heart in ways that we have not applied. And for some of us who have even thought about giving up on the faith or have, or have not yet believed in it because we think, what will this really do to all of the weight on my heart? And the, ans- and the answer you have for them is everything. And I pray that you'd bring that home, Holy Spirit, even now to people, that there is, there is a relief that you apply and you administer that we take little advantage of. And I pray that you'd help us to move away from the complaining and the perseverating we have on the curse, and turning to you and telling you you're not doing enough, and that in, yet in faith we turn to your good promises, and that we would revel in anticipation of the glory and feel what it's like to really believe that our light and momentary trials are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, and that we don't fix our eyes anymore on what is seen, but what is unseen, not what is on temporal, but what is eternal. Help us, God, in Jesus' name.